Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. Right now, the life that I'm living is a dream for a lot of people. And yet sometimes you find yourself being in the same mental state as you're at home. Like you still have problems and it's still kind of, sometimes you have a bad day and sometimes you're just like, wait, I'm in paradise and how come I'm not happy? Because even if you're traveling, like traveling is great, but it's not the answer to all of your problems. So if you think that starting to travel is going to solve them, uh, I think it's probably going to do the other thing. It's going to bring up more of what your actual issues are. And when you're traveling, yeah, you're far away, but you're still there with yourself. So you have to build a better relationship with yourself and then you can be anywhere and then you can be happy and you have a much better space to create. Today's most interesting real estate investors, entrepreneurs, and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey, everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Lydia Baikalova. She is a location independent entrepreneur, a photographer, a world traveler, and the co founder and owner of The I Do Photography, one of the top rated wedding photography and videography companies in Los Angeles. Her company has done over 800 weddings, taken over 2 million photos, and received over 300 five-star reviews and numerous prestigious awards. Originally from Kiev, Ukraine, Lydia moved to Los Angeles in 2010 to pursue an acting career. She started her photography business with her brother in 2012 with just a used camera and one lens. Over the past seven years, Lydia has scaled her business to 20 shooters, five editors, three managers, and automated it so that she is no longer required to shoot or manage on a regular basis and can spend her time traveling the world, writing, speaking, snowboarding, free diving, tango dancing, and starting new businesses. She has been to 37 countries. She is fluent in Russian, Ukrainian, and English, her third language, in which we'll be conducting this interview today. We are currently in Cape Town, South Africa, recording this. Lydia, welcome to the show. Hi, Matt. I'm very happy to be here. It is awesome to have you here. I feel like we need to start by literally setting the exact scene where we're sitting and what we're looking at. Can you describe this for us? 
Sure. I'm staying at the ocean right now and staying in this wonderful, beautiful co-living house called Co-Life. Been staying here for a month, literally living in paradise because we have a mountain on one side. We have the ocean on the other side. We have chosen family dinners every night and a yeah, fireplace. Fireplace is always very important. So I'd say this is a pretty cool spot to record this. Good choice. It's amazing. Yeah, we're literally, the scenery we're looking at is literally insane. If anyone has not been to Cape Town, I feel like for me, it's definitely in my top, I would say two or three most naturally beautiful cities in the world. It's just, especially on the coast, it's just dramatic, stunning landscape. And we're literally looking at that as we're speaking here today. Can you talk a little bit about how your experience in Cape Town has been? You've been here for at least a month now, right? Yes. Yes. I came here to stay with some friends in an organized co-living house. It was organized by Vlad and Vika, the owners of Co-Life. And I think this is their third time doing this project. They did one in Medellin and Barcelona, I think. And this has been an incredible experience because... I've been able to connect with the people that I'm staying with, and we've had an amazing experience. We've visited wineries. We we were going to do a sunset sailing, but sunset didn't happen that day. So we stayed. But honestly, that we love this house so much that we've just been hanging out here for a long time and working. Everyone's doing work during the day, and we have great times during the evening. Like we go out, out to town and we cook for each other, and then we sit around the fireplace with a glass of wine and share stories. And a really cool experience that we had to. This whole month we were preparing to go to Africa Burn. It's a regional Burning Man event. And we just got back from there, what, two days ago. So I think we're all kind of still getting used to normal reality, just getting back in the flow of things. But it has been a really amazing experience. I think co-living is probably going to be a big thing in the future. It's a new way to live for a lot of people because we're all missing community and this is how you can get it. So uh, if you haven't tried one, I would highly recommend it. Can you talk a little bit about the Burning Man concept? They obviously do a Burning Man event in the US. They do one that you just went to here in Africa and they do them a couple other places around the world. But can you talk for people that aren't familiar with the concept of Burning Man? What is it? What are the principles and what has it meant to you in your life? Of course. Burning Man did become a part of my life uh, a little over two years ago, and it has been an incredible experience. Burning Man is not a festival. It's a community of people that gathers once a year in Nevada desert in Black Rock City. It's 75,000 people currently, and I think it's growing every year. And the beauty of Burning Man is that it's based on these beautiful 10 principles. So the principles are like radical self-reliance, radical self-expression, gifting communal effort participation. It's really, really awesome because it's a very alternative way of a society to live. Even though it's only a week, the city arises of the dust for just that one week and then it goes back to absolutely nothing. One of the principles is also leave no trace. So people don't leave anything there. You don't even really dump the water on the ground. Whatever you bring with you, you take back. And one of the other cool things is there's no money. And there's, there's nothing that's commercialized. You can't buy anything at Burning Man except I think for ice and maybe coffee at the center camp. But you will get a lot of stuff because one of the principles is gifting. There are a lot of camps. A lot of the beauty of it is that people create these camps. And we did one at Africa Burn. Africa Burn is a regional event that's taking place in South Africa. So it's like a mini Burning Man in Africa. And we were creating a camp actually this time called the Vagabonds. And our camp had a sauna which one of my friends, Sam and Martin, they, they built the sauna, which we 
gifted to people in the desert. Anybody could come and enjoy the sauna. And we also did massages and guys did workshops. So it was, it was really a very cool camp. And uh, Vil, who organized it, I think he did an amazing job with it. But that's one of the cool things at Burning Man is you can find a lot of different camps. And it's the randomness of it. You'll start out your day and you'll go to one place. You'll go to like a tea house and you'll have some tea and you'll meet some people. And you'll, then you'll get in an art car and you'll go see an art piece. And by the way, the art is incredible. Most of the money, I believe, that's gathered through tickets goes to sponsor these art projects. So I think Burning Man is the best place to see true modern art because you have the desert and this is, it's an incredible landscape. And if you guys are not familiar with Burning Man, just Google some photos and you'll see this incredible post-apocalyptic type look where it's these people in the desert, they're all dusty, but the art is just amazing. Like honestly, some of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. And it's so random too, because the things that people create, I feel like it's a playground for adults. People there in many ways are, it reminds me of how people were meant to be because they're playful and they're enjoying life and they're trying new things. And they're not limited by these boundaries that we set for ourselves in society. And it's so beautiful. And I think it's more viable because it is only for a week, because I think that way to live would be very hard in the long run. I think it's possible, but we're not used to that, where we'll have to seriously restructure our brains to be able to do that. But yeah, I think Burning Man is amazing. And it's probably the closest thing to religion that I could see myself practicing. You know, these amazing 10 principles where you just love other people and you want to gift and you want to be open to things. And it's really, really awesome. And actually, Last year, I brought my parents to Burning Man. My parents and my brother and some of my friends and my parents absolutely loved it. And take a note, they're not like hippies or festival type people. I don't think they've ever been to one. They loved it so much and uh, we're all going back this year again. Wow, that's incredible. So now is this your first time in Africa? Yes, it is my first time in, well, at least in Southern Africa. I think I've, I've been to Egypt once, but that's a very different Africa than here. But yeah, one of the reasons I came to South Africa is for Africa Burn. And although there were some differences, some of which I liked, some of which I didn't, but I think it's also an incredible option for people because it, it may be a little bit hard to make it to Burning Man in the States because you need visas and you need, and it's, it's kind of expensive. It does add up because you need to bring everything with you in order to survive in the desert, including food, shelter, how to remove garbage, like gray water containers sometimes, like a lot of stuff. In Africa, I think it's a little bit easier. Tickets are a little bit easier to get to. And it may be cheaper for like for people from Europe, for example, it may be an easier place to get to. So yeah, if you're not able to make it to the big event in the States, then Africa burns your way to go. Awesome. And can you talk a little bit about your broader lifestyle design choices and structure right now? How are you designing your lifestyle? How much are you traveling? How long are you staying? How are you choosing where to go and so forth? Sure. I'm a part-time nomad. So I travel about half my time. Uh, usually it's about two, three months on, two, three months off. My home base is Los Angeles, California. And my family lives there. My mom, my stepdad, and my brother, very, very important people in my life. So this lifestyle allows me to see them a lot. We actually share a house in Los Angeles by choice because that way I can see them more when I'm there. And the other time I travel with my best friend, usually with my best friend and it's great. Yeah, so far we've probably done five of these like two or three month trips and it's been absolutely amazing because slow traveling is really cool. You get to really experience what it is like, what's it like to live in a place for you know two weeks, a month, 
Cape Town is actually one of the longest stays in one place that I've done. And I really like this. I think this is really, really cool to be able to feel like you have a home and then have another home. And actually, this house has been so awesome that I'm definitely going to miss this. This is probably the most luxurious house I've ever stayed at. So yeah, this is kind of like a whoa, big check mark. Live by the ocean, wake up every morning, walk out on the balcony, listen to the waves as you're going to sleep. Yeah, I'd say this is good life. That's amazing. All right, let's talk a little bit. Let's go back and talk a little bit about your journey and how you got here to this particular lifestyle. And maybe we can start all the way back in Ukraine and maybe just talk a little bit about what was going on in Ukraine in terms of your entrepreneurial roots and you know what was going on with you professionally and what brought you to LA. Sure. Been a long journey. I was born at a very young age. Uh, Well, um, I did live in Ukraine until I was 23. And I kind of got lucky with my English because I had American friends growing up. So I started speaking fluent American English at about 13, which I think gave me a lot of opportunities because language can get you places. But the cool thing about my entrepreneurial endeavors is that I always, like I come from humble beginnings. My family was never rich. And I knew that if I don't do it, nobody else will. So I knew that I had to make my own money. I had to support myself and at times also help my family. My mom taught me so much because she supported me and my brother and she raised us to be the people that we are now. She's the most incredible woman. Like, um... She picked up yoga like seven years ago or so. What am I saying? Less, probably three or four years ago. And now she can do the splits. She can stand on her head. She keeps stealing my clothes all the time because, you know, they fit her. And so, yeah, like my wardrobe now is not just my own anymore. She's just an incredible person, always looking for new stuff. And I saw her journey from being somebody that's always troubled and worried. And, you know, she had to provide for two young kids in an environment that wasn't exactly great. It was the Soviet Union just fell apart. You know, money was very hard to make, very, very hard to make. At some point, I think we survived on $40 a month or an equivalent of $40 a month. And I learned a lot from her. I learned how to hustle. And so she's a musician, so she wasn't made to hustle, but she had to. So she figured stuff out. She figured out how to raise us, how to make us into good people. And she was so, so loving. I think the only way I didn't come out broken and all all kinds of bad is because of how much my mom loved my brother and I. So I started hustling pretty early once, you know, I could speak English at 13. So I did uh, interpreting for these church groups at that point because there were a lot of missionaries coming to Ukraine. And so I would translate for them. And that's how I started making my first money. And then I graduated high school at 16 and I needed to go to college and I needed to pay for college. So I thought of how in the world am I going to do this? So I sat down and I opened, uh, I think there were still phone books at that point or something where there was information. And I called every travel agency and every like translation agency that I could find asking if they would hire me. Let's just say nobody was super excited to hire a 16 year old. So they didn't give me a job, but somebody did say that, hey, uh, I have uh, an American friend who's looking for an assistant. So I think at that point, actually I was 17. So yeah, I started working for this uh, American guy, just helping him out, you know, translating whatever I needed to, running some errands. And at that point, when we went our separate ways, I thought, okay, what can I do well? what can I do well? And I get a lot of good ideas in the shower, actually. Like, 
lots of my great ideas are coming when I have this like hot water, I'm away from the world, just kind of being there with myself. And I thought, well, I can talk to foreigners very well. They seem to see me as this link between their world and my world. So I could do that. And I came up with Kiev Assistant which was the way I made my money for uh, a few years. I paid my way through college. I paid for traveling with that, along with some of the acting gigs that I was doing. But yeah, that was a really, really cool way to meet a lot of people. I was only working about 10 days a month and I was making close to $1,000, which in Ukrainian terms is pretty damn good. So uh, that was a very successful project. And then I understood if I put something together and I put an effort into it, it happens and then things work out. So, hmm... Let's do this again. But yeah, I put an ad in the local map, the map you used to get at the airport when you get into a city. And I would literally go up to people that I thought looked like foreigners in our central street, Kushatik, the central street over over city. And I would just tell them like, hey, I'm Lydia. I do interpreting and guiding. If you need an assistant or any help, you can call me. Here's my business card. And that was a great lesson. I did that for a whole summer. And I got work out of that. But I also, as I realized later, I got over this fear of coming up to people and asking them for something because you deal with a lot of rejection, but you also get something good out of it. But yeah, sometimes you come up to 10 people and they're all weirded out, but you know, you don't die. Nothing bad happens. And then you're like, wait, failing isn't that that scary. So that taught me how to do that. And I think it helped me so much in, in the future life. So if you guys have never done like a failure challenge of some kind, do it. It's going to make you a better person. I agree with that a hundred percent. Anything in life, especially business, which is based on sales and selling, you better expect to be turned down nine out of 10 times. Everything that you're going to sell, no matter what it is, no matter how amazing it is, and you need to be prepared for that. Yep. And I think, you know, in anything else, I'm sure in the acting experience as well, in terms of auditions. And I mean, I have never done acting, but I've certainly lived in LA for about seven years. And I know a lot of people in that space. And I mean, you just better be prepared to be turned down more than nine out of 10 times, you know, for acting auditions. I mean, any space where you want to be really successful, you have to be prepared to be rejected the vast super majority of the time. I agree. But learning that failure is not the end, it's a learning experience and a stepping stone is what's going to make you successful at the end of the day. It's the grit. You just got to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until you until you get there or until you don't want to get there anymore. So it really depends. But yeah, I think failure is a great tool. Yeah, 100%. And rejection is a great character building experience to enable you to continue pursuing on and pursuing on and pursuing on. And eventually that's how you succeed or build something or, you know, move forward on your path, whatever that may be. So, okay. So then from there, what was the acting part that was going on in, in Ukraine and what initially made you move, decide to move to LA? During this whole time, when I was about 15, my friend and I were sitting in a mall, I think like a food court in a mall. And we asked this lady next to us to take a photo of us. And she did that. And then she gave us her business card and she was a like a casting agent for a production company. And I thought, why not? So I went to my first audition and luckily I actually booked it and I got my first commercial when I was 15 in Ukraine and it was a big national commercial. So that was really cool. And ever since then, I just started doing these acting gigs, mostly commercials in Ukraine. And I did pretty big national campaigns at that point. And it was so fun. I loved it so much. I mean, I knew that in Ukraine, an acting career isn't a viable choice because there isn't much of that going on. I can't say that I was in love with theater then. I love it a lot more now. But still, usually film is the medium that I prefer because I love creating something that 
I can rewatch and something that lasts. And yeah, so just doing these commercials made me really want to do this more. And then when I had an opportunity to go to the US and try doing this professionally, I did think about it long and hard because that meant leaving my family, leaving my business, leaving everything that I've built and starting from scratch in a city that I don't know particularly well and where I don't really know anybody except for a few acquaintances. But I'm very glad I took the risk. Honestly, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done. My first half a year in LA were miserable, lonely, and very hard. I cried on the back of the bus very often. And I did think about coming home, but then, you know, if I came home, I would have failed myself because I didn't give it my full, my best and my full effort. So I stayed and then a great miracle happened two years down the road. My mom, my mom won the green card lottery. So the rest of my family was able to move to the States and stay there. And that was kind of like, okay, like I, I think this is something I actually got to do and a place for me and a place I got to stay. And uh, yeah, now all of us really enjoy this this place. Like Los Angeles is a great city as every city in the world. It has its ups and it has its downs, but it's an incredible space that has given me so much. So I moved to the States and I started getting into the acting world, which of course turned out to be so much harder than I expected. God, I was like, I was so naive now that I think about it. I was like, well, if I could get jobs in Ukraine, I can get them in LA because there are a lot more jobs. Well, hey, one thing I forgot is there are a lot more people there too. <laughs> Everyone from everywhere in the world comes there. And I thought I was a good actress. Like I thought I was actually good. I sucked. Like I could do a commercial pretty well, but God, give me a script. And like, like oh man, like I'm ashamed to like look back and think of how much I sucked. Now, I did get better, much better. And I, I think by the time and quick fast forward, I did decide to let go of the acting career at some point because of this beautiful traveling lifestyle that I wanted to pursue. But by the time I quit, I was actually pretty damn good. So <laughs> it only took about, what, eight years, seven years, eight years. It was an incredible journey though. And I still love it. Being on set, being surrounded by these creative people and everybody's working so hard to do something. Everybody's loving what they're doing. It's an amazing environment. Honestly, this entrepreneurial lifestyle, the travel lifestyle is the only thing that beat it for me. I probably would not have let go otherwise. But this, being able to do that same thing, but when you're traveling and you have a lot more freedom and seeing these amazing places in the world and meeting incredible people that you connect with and you build a relationship with and just making the world small, having these friends everywhere. That, yeah, I have to say that beat it for me. That's incredible. I agree. The lifestyle is totally exhilarating and amazing when you're location independent and able to structure that and able to plug in to circles with other people that have the same types of values and the same types of you know lifestyle choices. It is truly incredible. Can you talk a little bit about that transition for you, though, in, and maybe just start with your interest in photography mm-hmm. and where that came from? I know you were on, obviously, the other side of the camera for quite a while as you know an actress, and you did print modeling, and you did a lot of that kind of stuff. But how did your interest in being the photographer come about? It happened by chance. So I always was around photography. And like when I was little, my grandma and I, we used to print shots in the dark room. That wasn't like, I was very happy that I had that experience where you take a blank piece of paper and you put it in a little bit of liquid and then boom, you have a photo that comes out of that. I kind of missed that actually. 
But it came out of necessity because I needed to make money somehow. And making money with acting is, well, that's the ultimate goal, but it doesn't happen for most actors right away. Actually, for most actors, it never fully happens. So you have to figure out ways how to survive. And for a little while, when my brother first moved to LA, we did background acting because he needed a job and I needed a job. So we were surrounded by these actors all the time. And I mean, background acting is also... It's uh, being an extra on set means you're the blur in the background, usually of the scene. Like you're all those people that fill out the room or whatever space they're using. So it's not a very lucrative job and it doesn't really require any acting skills whatsoever. But it's a very interesting environment. I wouldn't recommend doing that for a long time. But if you're in an environment where you can do a little bit of that, try it. It's super, super fun. But we were surrounded by these actors and we thought, okay, so how can we make money here? Because we're in this environment and they all need something. So what can we do? So we thought we we're going to do these actor packages, which would have an acting website, business cards, and headshots, which were very important for actors. But the problem was neither one of us was a professional photographer. Like we were both kind of hobbyists, but we didn't really have the equipment that it took. So we had a choice to hire somebody, but then we would have to deal with them all the time. And we weren't sure we could make it work in terms of money where we keep paying somebody for it or learn it. Actually, just learn it. So we went to Sammy's camera. Neither one of us had enough credit to actually buy a full camera. So we got two credit cards and we split the camera, used camera payment. It was a Canon 5D Mark II at that point. One lens, it was an 85 uh, 1.8 Canon as well. Great lens, by the way, still use it sometimes. And we split that camera between the two of us. And that's how we started. I asked a friend to give us the rundown of the basics. We watched a lot of YouTube, a lot of YouTube, everything we could get our hands on, how to shoot, how to do this, you know, how to, how to do headshots, especially because that's what we were trying to do. And we got really good, really fast. We lagged that camera everywhere. We took pictures and sibling rivalry really helps in getting good. <laughs> Because we would show off our pictures to each other. Like, look, here, here's what it took. We're like, oh man, mm, he did so well. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go take some pictures now. And we would play around with it. We would play with, with macro rings. We would try everything on earth that we could try. And like in probably two or three months, we were at a point where we could start charging money for what we were doing. And we created great product. Like it was always a thing that was, was very important for us. Provide great value, provide very good quality. I think we're both like on, on that mindset that if you're, like, you're going to do it, either do it well or don't do it at all. So whatever we're doing, both me and my brother, we get it to a point where it works really well. And so with the photography, we started doing these headshots. Also, we would take every photography job that we could because then, you know, like $100 was a fuck ton of money. And so you want to give me $100 for a couple of hours photography? Done. No problem. It's practice for me. It's money for me. It's photos for you. It's connections. It happened. And so one of the ways that happened was somebody called us to do a wedding. And we're like, uh, come on, like we don't shoot weddings. Like, you, are you sure you want to give this responsibility to somebody who doesn't do it? And they were like, well, we don't have much money. So you can take the pictures. I think we charged something like three or $400, which now is kind of funny, you know, for photo and video for a wedding. So very quickly, we also had to figure out how to do video. We did give them a very big disclaimer of, I have no idea how good this is actually going to work, but it did work out well. We rented some really cool lenses. We rented more equipment. We thought of how can we do this well? Funny thing is one of the pictures from that wedding is still a picture we use in our portfolio. So it's kind of like a lucky charm. So one of the photos from that wedding is still there. 
and we shot that wedding. We had a lot of fun. I did not realize how much fun it would be because it was this creative environment where we could work with people, we could direct them, and they were so happy. They were dressed well. Everything, everybody was happy. It was a party. And I never expected that I would like shooting weddings, but we did. So we put together an ad on Craigslist that we were shooting weddings. And we very luckily partnered up with two small companies that were also just starting out, like a chapel that was doing these small ceremonies in Los Angeles, Vegas style chapel in LA, and then a beach wedding photography company. We still work with, with the beach photography company. And we started shooting a lot of weddings for them. And we got a lot of experience really fast too. We, we were doing a lot of these weddings. So we were getting good. We were getting reviews. And in probably what, two or three years, we went to a point where we were getting more work than we could handle. So we, that's when we were seriously started thinking about either scaling or raising your prices. And I think for us, the answer was scaling because we wanted to still be affordable for people that needed it. And we wanted to have a price point where we don't only work exclusively with like the top, top people. And that's still a concept that we keep. Like we are, I think, among the really high end quality professional companies, we're still pretty affordable. And yeah, like that started the scaling. We first hired an editor. We taught him to work in our style. We went through weddings over and over and over and over so that he would really understand what we want and work with our presets. He's still one of our editors. He's our top editor right now. And we were like, whoa, a big chunk of work just disappeared. That was cool. Maybe I can do this again. Moreover, actually the quality of our editing, I think, improved because he was also experimenting and adding some of his flair to it. So he would get us uh, photos in our style and then a few like test photos in his style and they looked really cool. So now all of a sudden we also have a few editing styles on and that really gave us a taste of what's it like to add new people to your team. And we continued with that tradition. That's really significant. I think the first thing that I heard is to hustle as much as you can to generate more business than you can handle. And that's the first thing. You have to go, you have to sell, you have to generate business, you have to perform, you have to generate more business, and you just have to grind until you get that tipping point where you have more business than you can handle. Yeah. Scaling does have, like, to be able to scale, you need to have a solid cash flow. Because if you don't have a solid cash flow and you start paying other people, that can bring you to a point where you lose a lot of money. And up until very recently, we've never lost money. Like we've always been profitable. Actually, recently, I mean, some people still say, you know, we're profitable because overall at the end of the year we are, but we did recently have a couple of months where, because we started being very liberal with where we put our money because we had a very solid cash flow. So we're like, yeah, let's invest into advertising and let's get new equipment and let's do this, let's do that, let's hire people. And so when a pretty crappy season hit, winter is our, our low season, all of a sudden we were losing very big amounts of money and we're like, whoa, okay, well, this is a good lesson. There was one good thing about it because this was always something I was really afraid of and then it happened. And then I'm like, okay, what? I think I survived. All right. Well, cool. Uh, Now I'm not as afraid of it. So yeah, and in a way that's another failure, but it also prompted us to make even more changes and we started perfecting even more now. We started creating better systems. I think we're going to, like we have, of course, we have very strong guidelines for our photographers and we have a a Bible, like an 80 page guide for how to shoot weddings that we created that was based on our style. But I think rather than just having it as a written guide, now we're going to turn it into a video course. 
And I think we're going to be able to communicate even better how you want people to do stuff. And then, of course, before we hire a photographer full-time, we do lots of photo reviews. We work on stuff so that they can perform on the same level that we perform. Can you talk a little bit about the scaling process from the start and how someone should think about the principles of scaling when they're at that point where they've hustled, they've generated more business than they can handle that they want to scale? Can you talk about first step, second step, and how to think about it and how to do it properly? Of course. For us, it was a lot of hit and miss, and it took a while to figure out how to do it properly. And I think we're finally at a point where we have a pretty good formula. But a lot of people think that it's impossible to scale or automate a service-based business. It's not. When you're an entrepreneur and you're doing everything yourself and you're doing it super well, I had the same feeling where for a long time, I felt like I'm the only one who can do this. And yes, you're the only one who can do all of it. But when you break it down, all of a sudden you understand that there are people who can actually probably do it better than you. And in terms of the cost of labor, a lot of the times, like for example, with photography, a lot of photographers just want to shoot. They don't want to do the business part of it because that is honestly the biggest hustle is the business part of it. And so we're giving photographers an opportunity to focus on what they love and what they do best, which is take pictures. And then we're giving editors a chance to edit photos and it's what they do best. They edit photos. So everyone's doing their part. And you can charge more money when you're doing everything yourself. But when you break it down, actually, you can just give the person the amount of money that their specific skill costs. And a lot of the times that skill is going to cost less than the combination of it if it's just you, because being able to do everything yourself is a very valuable skill. And that's probably why you're getting so much money for what you're doing. But there's also proper steps to how you can actually get it to a point of automating. And this is breaking it down a little bit. So first you got to look at your processes. Like what are you actually doing on a daily basis? What do you do all the time that generates you money? And first thing that you do is you eliminate the unnecessary. So if there's anything in your process that really doesn't bring you anything useful, and a lot of times we do that. Like we think, oh, you know, like right now, let's do Facebook because maybe one day it's going to bring me something. But for example, right now, maybe it's best for you to focus on something that will generate you money now or something that's going to be more useful. So you got to pick and choose because you only got 24 hours in the day and you want to use those wisely. So you eliminate something that's not necessary at the moment. You may come back to it later, but you got to be wise and you know your own business. So this is how you're going to determine what you're going to eliminate. Second step is automate. So once you have determined the processes that are happening, you want to see which of those processes can take place without you. For example, you can use a CRM to, what we use is a CRM called Streak for that integrates into Google, which helps us to sort our mail into categories where we know, okay, this is sales, this is this, this is that. And it's going to automatically send out follow-ups. So we can set up a system of follow-ups that are going to go out automatically where we don't have to do it manually. And there are a lot of really good other things like statistics that you can pull out of that because at some point we're like, oh, we don't need that. Uh, But when we were little, when we didn't need that, right now we do. We also have HoneyBook, which is a tool that helps us with contracts so we don't have to do it manually. So simplify your processes as much as possible. There are a lot of great tools and it depends on the size of your company. For a long time, we didn't need any of those tools because we were small. I kept everything in my head. 
now, well, let's just say if that, if I kept everything in my head, we would have failed a long time ago. So look at what software you can use or what automated tools you can use to be able to do less. And once you have done that, what you have is the actual physical part of the work that you need to delegate. In our case, and there's a difference between a product-based business and a service-based business, because with a product, it's still a product. And you've, once you've automated, there's maybe not so much that needs to be delegated. In our case, if it's a service, that's your main thing. That's very important that you don't fuck it up, because if you got to a certain level of quality, and I do recommend having a very high level of quality for whatever it is you're doing, because then you have a lot more leverage. Even if you're doing something cheaply, do it cheaply, but in a quality manner. So for our service-based people, the process takes up a little bit more time because delegating that part isn't just shoving it on somebody and saying, you do this. We had to go through steps to figure out the system. And at first we we're like, okay, so we're going to hire photographers. So great, let's hire photographers. So we found people that were really good, interviewed them. But we, at that point, we didn't really have a big training process. We would just kind of give them the basic rundown. But then what we discovered is although they were taking really good photos, they weren't really our style. They weren't really what we were selling to people. So we're like, okay, let's backtrack here and think about this. So we thought we're going to train people more. So the second round is we would get people and then they would go on weddings with us over and over and over again. And we would show them the ropes. They would watch us shoot. And we thought that's going to do the trick. Well, not really. People would still forget and they would still fall back because wedding is a very stressful environment and you usually fall back on what you usually do once you're in that like, okay, now or never, got to do this, got to do this now or it doesn't happen. So people would still very often still do what they're used to doing. So we realized that they forget the information that we give them. And that's when we sat down and I wrote the photography, Wedding Photography 101 is our 80-page guide for photographers and how to shoot weddings. And then we started combining some of the in-person training and the guide. And that's when it finally really clicked because we were able to do that. And then through that, and then doing some photo reviews, going over pictures and saying, hey, this works, this doesn't, let's change that. This is great. This is where it was really a point where we were like, okay, this is working. However, how do you create that training guide? It wasn't really until I sat down and wrote it that I realized how I was doing things because it was all in my head and then it was all on paper. So what you do is you sit down and you figure out what makes your business your business. What's different? Why do people hire you? In our case, it was while everybody's using tuned down tones, because that's what's really popular right now, we were still using bright colors and pictures. So everybody that wanted that, that was our niche, like our brightness and colorfulness and vibrance in the photos. And that's what, something that we wanted to keep. So in editing, that's what we did. We kept that style. We were also very, very good at being directorial. Our pictures look very natural. A lot of the times people say, oh, that's such a great candid picture. And we're thinking, yeah, that's a very well-directed picture. And that's why you think it's candid. And actually a lot of times in wedding photography, people are like, yeah, those candids is what I want. And then we have to gently explain to them that you want somebody that's good at directing because a lot of good candids happen naturally. A lot of them don't. And sometimes you have to just give it a gentle shove to create that candid. So we brought that from the acting world is how do you direct people so that they look very natural in front of the camera, so that they feel comfortable, so that they're enjoying the process. And so we put that in the guidebook, put the apertures that we were using, we put the settings that we were using, we put the positions that we were shooting things from. And all of that was what made up our style. 
We also had a communication style. How do we talk to clients? We make it very casual. We make it very easy. Like it's their wedding day. You know, we want to be a part of the fun. We want to be somebody that makes their wedding day better and not worse. Like we want to, we don't want to be those serious people. If we wanted to be serious people, we'd be in corporate. So we brought all of that to the table. So you got to sit down and figure out what makes you, you, why do people use you? And a lot of the times it's something that's not obvious. It's something like you put them at ease in your, in your communication style, or you do your job in a very timely, efficient manner. And all of that is what's going to create your Bible to automating and to delegating because you want to teach other people to do that. And through you teaching them to do that is how you create value in those people. They bring their skills to the table, you give them your skills, and they become a very valuable professional that works for you. The cool thing about growing though is all of a sudden you have all these new skills. And you have all these people who are bringing their stuff to the table too. And all of a sudden you can offer more. So now we're able to offer a few different styles. And it's generally the same style, but it's a little bit more flair. Like, it, you know, some of our stuff is a bit more light and natural. Other stuff is a bit more epic and dramatic. And now we can offer both because we have a team that's able to do both. And that's really awesome. So yeah, don't think that you're the best thing in the world for your business. Sometimes letting it outgrow you is the best thing you can do for it. Totally agreed with that 100%. And then at that point, can you talk a little bit about managing a team and how do you run a business as you're scaling it? What is your responsibility as the business owner and how do you make sure that all the pieces are continuing to work in the most optimized way possible? Of course. I think the thing to realize is that as a business owner, everything is your responsibility. And when you're starting to scale, that's very important to realize. So if anybody else fucks up, ultimately that's your fuck up and you're responsible for it. I think integrity is a big thing because if your people look up to you and they see that you're true to the cause, you value quality, you value this fun and you have uh, respect for your team, I think those are very, very big factors. And I feel like, at least I hope that in our company that's true. But I think treating people with immense respect is a big thing. Also giving them the time of day, like letting them do their creative thing because micromanaging does not work. You want to put out your knowledge there and give them the knowledge and then hope that it works. And honestly, sometimes it doesn't. I've also unfortunately had people where things didn't work out and we had to let them go. But then we've had amazing people who have stayed and we've built amazing things together. Moreover, actually, when we started hiring, um, hiring a manager, uh, we started growing because when I was trying to do everything myself, wasn't able to give it the proper time. And then the moment we hired a manager and we were able to give more in the packages because of outsourcing, we doubled our business. Wow. That's awesome. I would love for you to share some photography tips. I have actually personally uh, had the privilege of being in one of your photography workshops, which was amazing. (laughs) Thank Um, you. And I think that one of the ways that you really differentiate yourself and you've been able to differentiate your company is in the creative, right? And a lot of the stuff that you're talking about in terms of direction and in terms of what you're actually able to produce, if two different companies shot the same wedding, your pictures would look different than the other companies. And you've created a very distinct, I think, differentiation, which I believe is largely, you know, why you're winning these awards and you're getting these reviews and you're doing this kind of stuff because you really have an incredible creative 
product that you've been able to do. And that also flows through to your personal Instagram and all of the photos that you're <laughs> taking you. in your personal life and everything else, which is amazing. And I'm going to recommend that everybody start following you on your Instagram because it's totally off the chain. But I'm wondering if you can maybe give some general photography tips for anybody, right? People that are even just taking their own Instagram photos or they want to look better in pictures themselves or things like that. Can you talk a little bit about the theory and the concepts and, and what people should be thinking about to, in terms of taking better photos? Of course. And this is something that I actually brought from the acting and directing world into the photography world. There are a lot of people that are going to tell you how to take a good picture, how to use the lighting and even how to use the posing. Although some some things that I saw in the posing videos when I was doing research for my workshop were really, really funny. It's like how to hold your, like stick out your chin. It's like, really? Yeah. There, there are a lot of really weird, <laughs> weird things out there that are circulating. The most important thing and the thing that makes a picture is your eyes and your face. I mean, of course, yeah, you can take like big wide shots and it's a little bit different, but if you're talking up close and personal photography portraits and somewhere where you can see the face, even if everything else is great, but your face is stuck in the fake world, you know, you're trying too hard and you're faking the smile, you're kind of putting on that emotion. It's never going to speak to people. It's never really going to tick that box of, Ooh, I really connect with that picture. And here's where this interesting thing comes forward because when somebody points a camera at you, you start thinking about yourself. You start thinking about how you look. You start thinking, do I look good enough? Did I work out my hair the right way? Did I wear the right clothes? It's like, oh man, that zit on the middle of my forehead is really the wrongest thing that can come out today. So all of these thoughts are pointing to you. And that's where the problem comes in. Because if you're thinking about yourself, like, okay, so if you were in a room with a person for two hours, would you rather be locked up in a room with a person that's focused on solemnly themselves or whether they're focused on you and their energies flowing back and forth? You don't want to be locked up with a selfish person. So a picture is the same way. You don't want to be looking at a picture of somebody that's solemnly thinking about themselves. You want to be looking at a picture of somebody that's interested in you or something else, somebody that's driven, somebody that has a passion. So very simple trick, you shift your focus. You take your focus away from yourself and you focus on something else or someone else. And it can even be something that's personal to you. It can be in your head, but you got to get out of that mindset of how do I look? What am I doing? You got to look at either your photographer or, um, you know, if there's a fucking beautiful tree, look at the damn tree. It's amazing. It's incredible. Take it in, take in every leaf, examine it, look at the sunset, look at the horizon line. And if you have to look at the barrel of the lens, then be interested in your photographer. They're the most interesting person in the world right now. Give all the love that you can to that camera, but shift your focus away from yourself. Do not think about how you look because that's going to really destroy your picture. If you keep thinking about how you look, it's those fake photos where the people are like busting out a smile and they're looking so cool. And I mean, yeah, that also has a category. There's fashion photography, but what we're talking about is everyday pictures for everyday people. And what you want to do is just be genuine. That's going to allow you to be yourself in pictures. That's going to allow people to really connect with your photos more because they're going to want to talk to you. They're going to want to connect with you through those photos that you're taking. One of the things that you've done that I think is one of the hardest things to do is not just that you've scaled a service-based business, because there's a lot of services out there, but specifically an artistic, creative-based business, right? Because that I feel like is unbelievably difficult to do because as the artist, as the creative, you are doing something that is very unique to you, right? You are producing art the way that you see it, the way that you feel it, and you're doing something that's very unique. 
And then to be able to have your artistic vision and your artistic production scaled in a systemic procedural way and to be able to have other people come in and help to reproduce and to monetize that, that I feel is is an extraordinary achievement. And I'm wondering if you can just, any tips that you have for people on that? Because I feel like it's one thing to say, you know, I'm the self-employed person and I do everything the best. Like that's normal. Like everybody says that. But I feel like when you bring art into it, it's just a whole nother level of, of difficult because it's so unique to you, right? So I'm wondering if you have any tips for specifically creatives and artistic types of folks for building and scaling a business around that. Thank you. I've never even thought about it, to be honest. Like it, it was such a natural thing for me. I never even thought it's like that. Yeah, this is an artistic and a creative thing. For one thing, it's important to let people see the motivation of why you do things. You got to show them your why. Your why is the base of everything. Anywhere from hiring people to, to scaling to teaching people how to create art is you got to show them why you do things. So if you're taking a specific shot, you got to show them the reasons. And also you got to like let them bring their own creative view into it too. And I think it, you know, that's, that's what makes things better. But showing them, so if you're taking a shot, you don't just say, here's how you take the shot. Like you do this, this, and this. You got to tell them why you do that. What's the reason behind that? Uh, we want to bring out emotions. We want to show the relationships between people. And this is how we do it. Once they understand your motivation, that's when they're able to really do it and see, oh, okay, that makes total sense. And with creativity, especially, yeah, like, What's your process? What moves you to do this specific thing versus that specific thing? Because there are other companies, like there's a company that I really respect, Lynn and Jersa, who are also really big and who create beautiful pictures and their epic style is amazing. They're very technical, but I think sometimes they do lack that emotional aspect. And like we've learned a lot from them in the epic scale, but I think our signature is those emotional photos and being able to teach somebody to bring that out of another person is, is yeah, that's kind of the art. And I'm still learning how to do that. Like it's never, it's never a, a process that's complete. You still keep learning, but the why I think, yeah, showing people your why in the same way. Once I was, when I was teaching one of my managers to create galleries, I explained to her that we want to create a story for the viewer. So with every picture, we want it to flow and you want to feel like you're in there. You want to feel the little details. You want to go through clicking the pictures. Every next picture has to be interesting and it has to build up on the previous one. And you have to build it like you're building a movie. You know, you go from the wide to the close up and you build the cinematic experience through pictures. And that's when she was like, oh, I got it. And she started making these amazing galleries just from that one sentence because she's like, okay, now I understand. And, you know, before that, we like for years, I was just like, oh, let's change out this picture. Let's put this here. Let's put that here. But once I gave her the why, she was totally able to do it herself and do it beautifully. What are some of the biggest challenges that you have experienced and run into on your entrepreneurial journey of building and scaling this business and how did you overcome them? What did you learn from them? Oh, the fun part, huh? The challenges. Oh yeah, you're definitely going to have challenges. Honestly, the entrepreneurial life's like the beauty of it is great. But sometimes when you're going through the challenging phases, you're like, the f- why the fuck did I get into this? Like, oh God, having a job is so easy. You come to work every day and somebody tells you what to do. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of challenges. The biggest one is people, finding the right people. That's hard. 
and it's not something you can like lock in forever. Finding the right people is not easy because it takes a while for you to really understand whether this is the right person. And then to trust, like, yeah, you're trusting somebody with your baby. You created this for years and all of a sudden you're giving this into the hands of somebody else. Like, oh my God, it's scary. Letting go of control. That's the other thing is really, really tough. But if you found the right people, it's going to be easier to let go of control. When you're first starting this out, I think one of my biggest challenges was dips in quality because it was just so hard to give people something that I personally didn't think was the utmost best that I could produce. Now, here's the funny thing. A lot of the times people didn't care about the things that I cared about. And that's what I discovered. Like people were just as happy with their photos the whole time. And I was like, but this is grainy. It's not exactly perfect. And I realized, that's how I realized one of the principles of our business. This is that emotional aspect. As long as we have that, they, they love it. But at first it was really hard. When somebody wasn't doing as perfect of a job as I thought I would do, I was going nuts. I was just trying to be the control freak, like trying to like get into every single detail. But then, yeah, eventually when I started letting go more and I realized that other people should also have a say in this and bring their own creative vision as well, this made us better and stronger and it gave us a lot more variety. That's awesome. Can you talk a little bit about how you manage your team and your operation and run your business while traveling all around the world? Any tips on that? Sure. I have currently three managers and the roles did change through time. For example, at some point we started with just one manager, then we realized the workload was way too big. So we divided post-production and sales and management of daily operations. And at first we kept all of those positions in the United States and honestly, it was very expensive. So right now, actually just a few months ago, we outsourced our post-production position to Ukraine. I have a wonderful manager in Ukraine who's taking care of us post-production and it's been great. I think that was also made possible because we first figured out the system of how to do it by working on a daily basis with our post-production manager in the States. And the manager I had was also really, she was wonderful. There was, there was nothing wrong there. It was just costing me an arm and a leg. And now it's cheaper and we still have the same quality, which is incredible. So one of my persons is in Ukraine. So that's already remote. And it doesn't matter where I'm managing from, whether I'm in the States or not, then The other manager is in the States and I still have my original manager, Christina, who's absolutely wonderful. And the only reason actually we had to hire a second manager now is because Christina had a baby and she wanted to spend more time with her family. So she switched to part-time and we have another beautiful manager stepping in right now who's going to be doing it for the other part of the time because now we're bigger. So we need more people. But the way we're managing all of that is by having created the systems it really doesn't matter whether I'm there speaking right into her ear or I'm creating a video tutorial by recording what's on my screen from here. And then uh, I also have a lot of training materials. We have an internal Q&A and we have scripts. And like, for example, if we have like tough cases where we need to do damage control, like I have case studies from previous cases where they can study that and look at stuff. And then also I'm, I'm mostly available. I'm around the world, but they can contact me at any point. So really, you'll be surprised how not necessary your physical presence is in so many, so many options and times. And for the photographers too, like I've already created these systems. Yeah, I spend a lot of time creating them when I was doing that and I was like losing sleep and getting, you know, like 
blue circles around my eyes at that point thinking, why didn't, did I get into that? But once it's done, it's done. And that's the beauty of it. Like once you've created a system and you've documented it and you've documented it in a way that's understandable for other people, you're not really as necessary anymore. So creating all of those systems and just making sure that people understand that answering questions. We have phone call training too. Like how do you, how do you talk to people on the phone? And most of the time people just want to be heard and understood. You want them to feel that you care about their problem. And the trick to doing this is to fucking care about their problem. I want to take just one minute out to let you know that in addition to hosting The Maverick Show, I am also the co-founder of Maverick Investor Group, a real estate brokerage that helps you buy turnkey rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets from anywhere. So these are single-family homes, sometimes two to four unit properties, and they're either brand new or fully renovated, and they already have tenants and local property management in place. So you get all the benefits of owning the deeded real estate, the physical house, the hard asset, without the headaches of being the landlord or the rehabber or needing to live near the property. So I want to offer you a free consultation if that sounds interesting to you. To learn more about it, you can just go to themaverickshow.com slash consult. And now, back to the episode. Totally agreed. Totally, totally, totally agreed with that. Let's talk a little bit about travel now and your travel lifestyle and your choice to travel in general. I just want to start off, I think, with a broad question and ask, why do you travel? What does travel mean to you? Why do you choose to travel? I have a counter question to you. Why would you not travel? Why would you not want to see this beautiful, amazing planet with everything that it has to offer, meet different people, grow as a human Traveling always puts you in this environment where you're forced to grow because you always have some adversity. And adversity is not bad if you learn how to understand it correctly. But when you're traveling, like you're not in your own comfy little bed. I honestly don't know how to stay in one place for too long anymore because, I mean, unless I have something that helps me grow there. But it's just when you're falling into a routine and unless your routine is very conducive to growth, I feel like I get depressed when I'm in one place and not doing anything that prompts me to become better. But when I'm traveling, yeah, even like having to book new places, getting to somewhere and there's no hot water, you know, having to choose food. That's also a very big, it's surprisingly a big challenge, like food when you're traveling, you know, going to a restaurant, you're not guaranteed to get the same menu you have at home. And a lot of times you order something, you're like, this is not like anything I've had at home. You order a Capresa salad in Argentina and you're like, why in the world is there cheddar in here? So you get a lot of the stuff you didn't expect. And then how you deal with that, how you choose to deal with any situation that's not easy and perfect, it just forces you to think and to be more present in your moments. And that's what life is all about, being here now. And when you're traveling, you get a lot more of here now. Can you talk a little bit about the skill development that you've been focused on in some of your travels and some of the things that you've been choosing to learn and experience as you've been going around the world? Yeah. um, (laughs) I do have a big knack of picking up new skills. And a lot of those skills are extreme sports. Just so happens, adrenaline is a really fun thing. So a lot of the times when I'm in a new place, if it has something really, really cool to offer, like 
although this is not an extreme sport, but like in Argentina, like in Buenos Aires, not doing tango is a crime. Although tango is a lifelong relationship, as I understand now, but boy, is it a beautiful one. So when my friend Julie and I were in Buenos Aires, we started taking tango lessons and we actually were, we carried it back home. Like we started tangoing back in LA when we came back. Uh, in Brazil, there's there's a beautiful, perfect environment for kite surfing in Jerry Coquire, Brazil. So we took some kite surfing lessons and it was a lot of gulping water and a lot of falling flat on your face, but that's so fun. It was so cool because you're constantly in places where you can learn something new. And when you learn something new, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's like one of the best feelings in the world when you tried something and then all of a sudden you can do it. You couldn't do it yesterday and now you can do it. I think it's pretty damn awesome. That is amazing. Now, you and I were actually in Brazil together in December for part of that. And then we parted ways. And after I left, I heard a rumor. You got to tell me if this is true. I actually heard that you got arrested in Brazil. (laughs) And if you did, I totally need to hear this story. Uh, is that yeah. true? Yeah, actually that, that did happen. In Brazil, my brother and I went to an island of Fernando de Neronha and to do some free diving because we heard that there was a like a local pot of dolphins, like an actual pot of dolphin that lives in the island and you know, they're always there. So we thought, my God, this is awesome. So we get to the island and one of the mornings, like we learned where the dolphins hang out. They hang out at the port early in the morning. So we get to the rocks, we get on the water, we put on our fins and it was a tough, rocky entrance. And you know, we swim out in the hopes that the dolphins are going to come and the dolphins swim up to us. And it was, it was one of the best moments of my life. Like they're incredible creatures and oh my God, like, and you know, dolphins in captivity are all cool, but dolphins in their natural environment in a pod they're so curious. They swim around you. They're like, oh, hi, human. What are you doing in my waters? Why are you here? Hello. Oh, oh, oh you're, you're so cool. Oh, you got fins on. Mm, yeah, I got better fins. I can do this better than you. Look at what co- I can do this cool thing. I can swarm all around. I can turn around. And you're just looking at them and you're in complete awe of how beautiful this planet is. So we had this incredible moment, right? I mean, dolphins, come on, like in open water, like what can be better than that? And we're like, hey, we're, we're getting out, you know, we're like, oh man, that was, that was incredible. We succeeded. We're so happy. We get out to the rocks and there's this ranger that's showing us a badge and he says something in Portuguese and we're like, <laughs> okay. So we get an understanding. He wants us to come with us. Anyway, long story short, we, yeah, we basically got arrested because we were taken to the station because apparently you were not supposed to like swim towards the dolphins, which we had no idea because it wasn't like, it wasn't like any kind of common knowledge. And this was not in the marine park. Like usually marine parks have pretty strict rules, but this was in the port. So like we had no idea that this was also like some kind of a protected area. And um, yeah, I mean, like what we did did not have harm, but I could see why that would be a rule because probably a lot of people would be doing it otherwise. So I guess it does make sense after all. But yeah, we were taken to the station. We had a conversation for like two hours and they brought in this girl who spoke English and we all try to like, we try to explain that like, look guys, if, if you wanted to convey this information, it would have been really great to know this ahead of time. We would have never done this if we knew that this was not allowed. So after a very long conversation, we actually ended up like really bonding over our love of the ocean and how we want to like fix the seas and get all the plastic out of them and like not have people throw straws into the water. And we like became friends and shook hands and, you know, gave each other a hug. And they even asked us to like give them a list of recommendations of what they could do to like help foreigners better understand what they want. And yeah, we did get to like complain about the trash because that island is actually very expensive and they actually charge fees to like even get on the 
aisle. And so like, come on guys, like clean up your trash. And it was a really cool experience at the end of the day. But boy, were we like scared shitless for a little while. We're like, are we getting arrested in Brazil? I don't want to go to a Brazilian prison. Like I didn't mean anything bad. So yep, got arrested in Brazil for swimming with dolphins. Wow. An incredible ending of the story though. That's awesome. Can you say a little bit more about free diving just for people that maybe aren't familiar with that? What is that? And what is that experience like? What does that mean to you? Ah, free diving. Mm, Thanks for bringing that up. Free diving is basically diving in a breath hold. You hold your breath and then you go as far down as you can. And people do free diving differently, like proper free diving. You go down the line and then you go up the line. It's a little bit more technical, but you can also just free dive as long as you do it safely. And always with a buddy. My brother's my my free dive buddy. And he got me into this actually about five years ago. And it's an incredible experience like no other. Because in regular diving, which I also do, you sort of you look outwards, right? You go down with a tank, but you're you're very intrusive to the environment. You have these bubbles, you're big, you can barely move. And yeah, it's really cool for looking outside and looking all around you. But free diving is an as much of an internal experience as it is an external experience. You hold your breath and you get into this different world where everything around you is like you're a visitor, but you're so blessed to be there with these with the fish and the coral reef and this blue, this amazing big blue. You mean on a sunny day when you're down at the bottom and you're looking up and like your friends, you know, your buddies all the way there, and he's a tiny little dot. And you're just in a different world. You're in a different planet. And you see the light shimmering in the water. I like sometimes I, I wish I had a pair of gills that I could do that longer. Like I probably I'd probably do the surgery. If there's a surgery, like get gills. If it didn't have too many risks, I would do that because that world, if you don't do diving or free diving or any sea activity, if you can give yourself that, give yourself that gift. Because that world, the sea and the creatures that live in it, it is one of the most profound and incredible experiences that I've ever had, being able to share that environment, being able to dip out of this and also being able to be without air. Like you have this moment of, this is not going to last, you know, I'll need air. I need to come back. But once I'm here, like just being able to just fully relax there on the bottom and give yourself a moment because you have that moment and not have to think about coming back and think about your air. It's really one of the most like Zen places I've ever been just on the bottom of the ocean. It's amazing. I know that you have done a lot of amazing things, obviously, as we're talking about right now and having a lot of incredible experiences and and structuring your lifestyle in a way that allows you to have all of these extraordinary experiences. And I know that as you've been traveling, you've also been doing an increasing amount of writing and reflection and opining and pontification and all of this kind of stuff. And I'm wondering if you could share some of the stuff that you've been putting thought and effort into and why you've been writing and what types of things you've been writing about. And maybe even just starting with some of your reflections on the nomad life that you've been writing about. Of course, at some moment, you know, you try to figure out your life. And right now the life that I'm living is a dream for a lot of people. And yet sometimes you find yourself being in the same mental state as you're at home. Like you still have problems and it's still kind of, sometimes you have a bad day and sometimes you're just like, wait, I'm in paradise and how come I'm not happy? So what I've been doing a lot is just pondering life and trying to figure out how to really be somewhere. Because even if you're traveling, like 
traveling is great, but it's not the answer to all of your problems. So if you think that starting to travel is going to solve them, uh, I think it's probably going to do the other thing. It's going to bring up more of what your actual issues are. And when you're traveling, yeah, you're far away, but you're still there with yourself. So you have to build a better relationship with yourself and then you can be anywhere and then you can be happy and you have a much better space to create. So what I focus on a lot is being able to find tools and things that enable me to have a better relationship with myself so that I can also serve people better. And that has been a lifelong journey, just figuring out how to be happier, how to really enjoy life, how to be more in the moment. And I'm an A-type control freak. Like I really like to be in control. And I, that's one of the reasons I worry a lot because that's that's your brain's attempt to control the future. Worrying is exactly that most useless thing. doesn't help at all. But when you worry, you think that because I worry, I'm somehow going to you know, have this grip on how the future is going to turn out. So learning to undo all that has been something that I'm still working on. And then relationships too, like relationships with people, relationships with yourself. Relationships are the single most complicated thing on this planet. So I think we got to learn to figure them out a little bit better than we have been. I mean, like our world could use a lot of like improvement when it comes to relationships. We're struggling with community. We're struggling with family. We're struggling with love and friendship. How do you do all that right? How do you do all that better? And for me, it's just been trying to figure out how to be a better friend and how to undo some of my own demons of like where, you know, what I want and what I don't have and struggling with, you know, like being able to get over suffering because of what I don't have and focusing on what I have. And that seems easier said than done somehow. For sure. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people, whether they're in the nomad lifestyle or they're thinking about it, you know, a lot of people have questions about a lot of things, which I think are super valid questions. For example, with regard to relationships in the nomad, kind of the itinerant digital nomad lifestyle, how do relationships work? How does love work? How does all that kind of stuff work in a digital nomad lifestyle? And I'm wondering about your thoughts and reflections on that. Yeah, of course. You know, here's the thing though. I've always been a person who's always wanted a family, like relationships and having a partner and especially like having a romantic partner is great. I love being in a very deep, real quality relationship. But with this lifestyle and actually funny thing is in LA, I can't say that I was able to find better quality relationships than I do in this nomad lifestyle, but then you have a problem locations. And that has been a big issue because yeah, like you meet somebody and you really connect and it's great. But the logistics, like, yeah, I mean, it's, of course, it's it's great if you can both travel to the same places, but what if they're not location independent? And you don't get to a point where you really get to know each other enough to like know whether you want it to be something big and serious. So I think also we have this mindset, right, where we think that we're taught to think because of millennia of our history and millennia of needing to only have one partner because family and survival, that's how, that's how you do that. Like if you're taught to think that you can only have one partner, one lover in your life, because, you know, you got to know where your kids came from. All of that is just based in survival. But the thing is, it doesn't serve us anymore. We're different. The world has changed, but our brains and our software hasn't. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be like, whoa, 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 woman, what are you trying to say here? And as a person who's also like, I was, I was raised in a pretty religious environment where I was taught that, you know, like you just have this one person, but I also know a lot of people who are very damaged by that belief 
because what if that person doesn't come? And yeah, I know like you got to let go and trust God and this and that. But also my beliefs have changed a lot and my understanding of God and, and a relationship between the divine and you has changed a lot. And I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me, but this made me a much happier person. And when it comes to relationship, my current belief is that deep, profound connection and care for each other are more important than trying to cling on to something which you hope is going to be forever. And honestly, we all really hope that we're going to find a forever relationship. But the truth is most people don't. And even though we find somebody that's profound and that's incredible for us, sometimes it's going to end. Either you're going to go your separate ways or one of your guys is going to, well, pass away. That's how life works. So being able to transfer this belief of I got to have forever and that's the only way I'm able to be happy and that's the only way I'm able to enjoy it to I'm able to enjoy this incredible connection without having to have forever. And it's not an easy thing to do by any means, because we have this mechanism. Remember that old brain, like, right, you know, clicking in, you know, you still have a brain that's trying to save you from the cyber tiger. So it's your brain is not geared towards trying to make you happy. It's geared towards survival. It's geared towards survival and procreation. Those are your two basic functions. But our world is different. We don't really have to think about food and safety and shelter all the time. We have a higher hierarchy of needs now. Like we're in a completely different set of things, but we still have this old brain that thinks in those old terms. So it's our job to re-upload new software and constantly to upgrade that software. And you do that through introspection, through analyzing your motivation, through analyzing your life. And I have a lot of tools that I came up with for myself that I hope eventually I can formulate and share with other people. But I think one of them is being able to focus more on now. Of course, you're building your future. But when it comes to a relationship, if you're with somebody and you're constantly worried because you know it's probably not going to last forever, that's going to damage this relationship. And also just thinking like, oh no, I just have to have this one person. And if this person's not my one person, I can't share something beautiful with them. That's not true. I'm also not saying like, go and like, you know, sleep with everyone, unless that's your thing. If you want to do that, then by all means, if you can be happy while doing that and be in a place where you're in balance with yourself, then sure. But for most of us, it's a very hard thing to do. And I think especially women, because we're geared towards our brains are made to find a partner, keep a partner because you need to raise offspring. That's how that thing works. That's why we're very concentrated on like finding that one person. But if you're able to let go of that and be able to enjoy a connection, but the thing is, it does have to be there for both of you too. If you're both able to fully give all of your love to that one person in that moment, you create an amazing moment. And it, it's a skill, honestly. It takes it takes some time to be able to get there. And one of the ways I do it is I'm just more open towards that. And I'm putting my vulnerability out there. As Brene Brown says, vulnerability is the core of fear and shame, but it's the birthplace of loving belonging. So you're not going to have loving belonging unless you're able and willing to face the fear and shame. But we're like, we're you know, going back to that failure talk. If we fail and then you survive, same thing with vulnerability. You feel fear and shame and you're in this bad place. And then you're like, wait, I survived. And I put myself out there and I give myself a lot of brownie points, even if I fail. Like if I try something and it doesn't work, I still give myself a pat on the shoulder and say, good job, Lydia, for trying. 
So just being able to be there and be open and offer your love to people, whether it's platonic, whether it's romantic, whether it's any kind of love, because when you're in the state of love, you can do amazing things. You're happier, you're grateful, you're able to forgive, you're able to get over things. And being in the state of love takes a lot of work. And you need to also love yourself before you can love anybody else. Because if you can't truly love yourself, if you can't let go of, we have a lot of stuff built up in us. Most of us have a lot of baggage because we're traumatized through so many different things. And a lot of times we talk to ourselves in a way that we would never talk to another person. That's also something that's worth changing. Like when you have that conversation in your head, why don't you just talk to yourself the way you would talk to your best friend and give yourself that love and respect too? But when you're in that state of love, everything is possible. You can change the world. You can do whatever you need to do. You can forgive. You can grow. And I think that should be everyone's goal to be able to love more, whether it's yourself or anybody else or the planet, because that's going to make us a much better planet and much better species. That's so awesome. I love reading your writing for exactly these reasons. That's why I wanted to make sure that we talked through some of this stuff here. So awesome. And one of the things that I think is important that you said also, and getting back to sort of these logistical questions about relationships that a lot of people have with regard to the nomad lifespan reflexively, like, oh, that's different. Doesn't it make it hard to, you know, X, Y, Z? One of the things I think is really important that you just said is that well, it's not necessarily any harder than it is dating in Los Angeles, you know, mm. to find, you know, whatever it is that you think you're looking for is not necessarily easier if you're in one city or one sedentary place. And I think that, you know, in the nomad space, the other thing I think, just logistically speaking, is that most of us are, you know, able to leverage and exercise our location independence in ways that give us actually a lot more flexibility than most people have to make certain things work. So first of all, we have options of a much broader range of people, you know, that can come into our ecosystem and our social world and be able to interact with and meet from countries all over the world, not just from our local town, first of all. Second of all, we're able to insert ourselves into specific types of communities with people that have similar values and similar passions and similar aspirations. So we're actually able to get a higher percentage chance of meeting people that have a lot of those overlapping, you know, core values and passions, right? In terms of compatibility stuff. And then logistically, if we are location independent, we have that greater flexibility to be able to say, okay, you know, we can either, and you know, I've been in relationships that have worked on different models, right? Like I've traveled with a relationship partner for years, right? Travel the world mm-hmm. together as a, as a couple for years. There's that model. I've been in relationships, you know, where the other person is not location independent like I am. You know, we've done some long distance stuff, but I actually moved to her city and, you know, to be with her and, you know, and I had the flexibility to do that because I'm location independent. Yeah. And so if I meet, you know, my soulmate, you know, I have the ability to move to her city if Mm -hmm. that is the priority for me to be with her and she can't do this other stuff. Right. And I have that choice. Whereas a lot of people don't, you know, if you, if you're on vacation, you know, and you meet someone and then you have to go back to your respective jobs, there's no chance. Right. So I feel like there's actually like an incredible amount of, you know, opportunity to, you know, for that whole thing, just for people that are, are questioning it or are wondering about it. I feel like the nomad life actually provides an incredibly increased amount of opportunity to meet amazing people and, you know, form different types of wonderful relationships. I completely agree. I think once I started living this nomad lifestyle, 
or part-time nomad lifestyle, I've met a lot more people who I feel I've connected with much deeper. And uh, I feel like I'm, yeah, I'm a lot more compatible with because we do share these similar values. I think the other big factor is urgency. And that's the factor that we miss in our everyday lives when we're staying at some place because you, you know, next week it's going to be the same and a month it's going to be the same and a year it's going to be the same, same place, same people. But when you're traveling and you only have that week, and I don't mean in terms of like where you're going, like, you know, you don't just jump in bed with somebody right away because it's urgency. It's the urgency to create something real. It's the urgency where you don't have the small talk conversation. It's the urgency where you meet tomorrow because you're not going to think, oh, next Thursday, maybe I have a little bit of time because it's now or never. And I feel like when I'm in LA, I really miss that because people don't understand that like life is happening now. And if you want to try something, you try it now or you don't try it. But when you're traveling, that urgency is there. So you make the plan right away and you have, you do like, I've done amazing things. I've had such great adventures, like the people I've connected with. And when we're like, let's do this, let's do this. Like you go swimming, you ride a bike, you, I don't know. It's like, there's so much that it's hard to describe, but literally like I would have never had these adventures if I just stayed in one place, but the places to like, if you're together in some beautiful place and you have an opportunity to something, to do something really incredible, like you do it. But this urgency of here now or never really gives you a chance to connect much faster and much deeper because you dive deep right away. You dive deep. And if you don't know what diving deep is, try uh, going over 36 questions to fall in love. There's something actually called 36 questions to fall in love. And you don't necessarily fall in love, but that's how you really deeply connect with somebody. Because you basically, it's, it's not magic. It's something that just fast forwards you through something that you would normally do through the course of a relationship in maybe a month or two. And then you answer these questions and all of a sudden you care for the other person because you know them on a personal level, because you've shared vulnerable, deep moments with them, because all of a sudden you see like, you feel like they've seen you naked, your soul naked, and you've seen their soul naked. And that's how you can form those real bonds. That's how you care about people. That's how you get them to care about you too. But you got to be in that space that's open for it. But just imagine that all of us every person would be that open to new beautiful relationships and we would let people in on that scale. Like what kind of world would we have? We would all of a sudden really care about each other. Hmm, right? That's awesome. I also want to ask you about your take on materialism and detaching from material items, but also the concept of having nice stuff. Like one of the things that, I mean, I do a presentation on minimalist packing about how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only. I remember, I've seen it. It was a great presentation. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Which for me was a really significant exercise to downsize my life to that amount of stuff because it really enabled me to thoroughly and completely detach from, you know, the social pressures to accumulate material objects and, and have that be, you know, any kind of pressure at all, because I I can only fit what I can fit in my carry on luggage. And that's allowed me to focus a lot more on experiences and on relationships with people and on things that are not buying material items and upgrading, you know, material items and all that kind of stuff. But with that said, the stuff that's actually in my suitcase, I actually, you know, carry a whole bunch of very nice clothes that I want to wear because I want to feel a particular way when I wear them. And I want to ask you about that and about some of your reflections on that concept and how you navigate that. You just said the key phrase, feel a particular way. Here's the thing about the material stuff. It's all tools. 
And you can't solemnly rely on stuff to make you feel a certain way, but why not use that tool if you need to feel a certain way? Sometimes you put on a pair of heels and all of a sudden your back is straighter, you feel more confident, you feel like you can go and conquer the world. And it's important to be able to give yourself that stuff. Now, I'm by no means encouraging the the culture of just like usage because you want to be very tactical about what and how you buy. And it's better to invest in something that's good that's going to last and serve you. But it's important to understand that physical stuff does matter because we have a physical body and that's how it works. There's a mind-body connection. So that's why it's, you know, it's important. How do you feel like you, you feel much better when you work out that way because you feel good about your body. You can use physical stuff in the same way. Like for my friend Julia and I, we do have a very big, important thing about having comfort. So for example, when we go to Burning Man or this time Africa Burn, we got string lights. Like we got beautiful string lights to hang in our tent so that it's cozy because coziness is a big priority because that makes us feel safe and good and like a cup of tea. Like it's important for me, like I actually travel with my spice kit and truffle oil because very beautiful food is important and I make it a ritual. I love the cooking. I love like the serving and same way uh, an item of clothing. When I was in Buenos Aires, I was doubting whether I should buy tango shoes. And I think that's probably, I wrote a post about it. And I think that's the one you read. And I was in doubt because they're kind of expensive and I didn't know whether I was going to be using them more. I didn't even know if I'm going to keep continuing to tango. And then at some point I just, I made the choice that like, I want to buy the shoes. So I went to this place and I really crafted the time on like my last day. And I went to this shop with, oh my God, that was shoe paradise. Total shoe paradise. You walk in and it's just this big empty room with chairs and they come and they ask you for your size and for what size heel you want. For, And then they bring you all these pairs of shoes in your size. Oh man, <laughs> shoes. There's just something about shoes. But the cool thing is when I bought these shoes and I picked the, I actually ended up buying like a main pair and a backup pair because that was the moment I realized I'm definitely going to be using these shoes, which I have been. I've been making the best out of them. But when I put them on, all of a sudden, like this feeling that I had for one thing, I was like, I'm going to be able to tango much better in these damn shoes. Like it's a whole (laughs) other story. And I have been. Seriously, proper attire for proper sports is absolutely necessary. And when it comes to dance, get the right shoes. But I also had this feeling of like, I could embody like the feel that comes from the ground, the feel of how your foot is standing on the ground determines how you stand, determines how you move. So it's a tool. So if you want to be a better dancer, yes, get yourself the right shoes. If you want to be a more confident person, get yourself that clothes that makes you feel like you're on top of the world. And I remember after, of course, yeah, like you said, you know, like, I mean, I don't care. You only carry on. I actually have a full on suitcase, but you know, that's, I, I do need a few more things in there that like tango shoes that don't exactly just fit in my carry. And a lot of hair stuff, you know, curly hair does require a lot of, a lot of care and you can't do that with carry on. So anyway, long story short, I was coming back home and I was, I had this, I remember like this black overalls too that I bought before the trip and same thing. Like I wasn't sure like how much am I going to use it because it's, it's, it's a really, it's such a stylish, beautiful piece of clothing. Like it's nice, expensive and beautiful piece of clothing. But I remember like, you know, when you're coming back home, you always kind of have this like, hmm, do I want to go home? You know, like and trip is ending. And for me being home also means a lot of work because usually I go through like growth phases when I'm in LA. So I work a lot. I don't really go out as much, but I remember going home and so looking forward to putting that, that beautiful black overalls with a nice pair of heels. And we were celebrating my mom's birthday. And I was able to do that. And I just, 
I felt so good being in this clothes, like looking great, you know, just feeling like I am the person that I want to be. The most important thing in life is like matching how you look, how you feel, you know, what you do with who you want to be. Because when you can fully feel like you're you, that's usually when you're very happy. When you feel like you can fully be who you're meant to be and you're fulfilling your purpose. So for me, material things are tools to be able to get there, just like everything else is, to be able to get that place where I'm fully me. And I think sometimes that's when I struggle, when, I, when I'm like not able to do that. And honestly, sometimes if you don't have anywhere to go and you have this beautiful clothing, just didn't wear it around the house. Just put it on and feel great and give yourself that gift. There's nothing about that that's useless. We're also taught to like try to, you know, make make sure everything is useful, everything works. But the value of things isn't just determined by how much use you're going to get out of them. And of course, again, I'm not encouraging wastefulness. That's that's a bad thing. Like don't do fast fashion where you get a lot of things and you just throw them away. Like I actually buy most of my fashion from used clothing places and whether it's an exchange place, that's a bit nicer or a thrift shop. I try to keep my, my shopping down to those places. And then, yeah, well, I wear something and I, I give it back to the same store and it's great. But this way I can really feel like, yeah, this is how who I, who I am. I can, I can wear this cool clothes and enjoy it and enjoy looking great, enjoy feeling like, you know, this is where I want to be at this moment of time and this is how I want to feel. And I made that choice and I made that happen. Awesome. I wanted to ask you what types of things are coming up next in terms of your business. What are you working on? What are you, what are the expansion endeavors that are going on and uh, what are you up to? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, one of the things that I'm very excited about is I'm working on a boudoir division for our business, which is a fairly new division, but I, I started building up the portfolio and doing these shoots because I feel like for me, it's also a chance to uh, give back to people. And when they're in some of their most vulnerable states, when you're not wearing much clothes or not at all, it's hard to let go of that. And actually like it's funny because I've also had to go through that journey myself. Like how okay am I with nudity? Like how okay am I with feeling like I'm not wearing any clothes? And I actually really understood that I really like not wearing any clothes. It's very, very liberating. And being able to not be ashamed of any part of your body is also a great gift. And I kind of wish that more people realized how wonderful it can be to just love all of your body. And I think boudoir is a thing that's able to do that. It's able to give yourself a way to see yourself as if you are on that magazine cover, as if like, how beautiful can you be? How romantic and sexy can you be? And I think especially for women, that's a problem a lot of the times. Most of us have a very serious issue with like body image. I'm sure a lot of men struggle with that too, but I think it's a, because I am a woman, you know, and I have this body, I can better relate to women. So I'm going to start there and then I'm going to expand to wherever it goes. But yeah, I want to be able to do that. I want to give this gift to women of being able to see themselves in a very beautiful way. And I think it's a two-part journey. Like it's me being able to take a picture of them when they look really great, but also some of them being able to let go of like not liking certain body parts or like being able to see them in different light. So it's a two-way street uh, and it takes an effort from both parties. But I'm excited to also make that. Like I, I want to do the same thing with it. I want to learn it really well. I want to create a system and then teach other people to do it and create either a separate company or another division of my business. And then um, 
thinking of eventually also going to other cities, like not just Los Angeles. We've got this beautiful system already. So now I'm perfecting it. I'm creating even more training courses, both for actually for our couples. We just created a training course for that helps people to understand how to get married properly because nobody really knows how to do that. And people make a lot of mistakes that they later think, oh, wish I knew this before. So doing these things, and then I also have a couple more projects that I am, they're not fully ready to, to, for me to really talk about them, but I am thinking of getting into other industries as well and learning new things because yeah, I think, you know, photography is great, but usually I have to kind of change something that I'm doing every five years. So, so I want to learn other industries as well and maybe get better at those. Yeah. Maybe actually some real estate. So just putting it out there. We can talk. Yeah, we can talk for sure. That's awesome. Lydia, do you have a morning routine? I want to ask, I guess, about sort of your day structure. So first of all, about morning routines and then also, you know, any productivity tips that you have for structuring your day when you're trying to be really productive in building businesses? For sure. I think a morning routine is imperative. I haven't always had a morning routine. Moreover, I'm a, I'm a very big night owl. And I used to think that's the only way I can function. And then a funny thing is very recently I understood that, no, I can actually be a morning person if I choose to. It just depends on what I need more in my life at that moment of time. Because if you're a morning person, you get tired in the evenings faster and you're not able to like stay up and talk to people. And in some situations, it's better to have your evenings. And for example, now I'm doing some work for my company, so I'm having to stay up late to be an American time. But the morning routine that I usually do is I wake up and do a meditation. After I do my meditation, I have a short workout routine. I do a three-minute plank and a few other exercises. I do some breath work and then I cook my breakfast and I watch either a TED Talk or another type of a YouTube video that gives me a condensed but strong amount of, of useful information. And then the stuff that I learn from there, I implement in my life. I make that into tools. If it's something that um, tickles my interest. I read more about it. A lot of TED and TEDx talks, but that those are a hit and miss. So sometimes it's easy to like also get on a TED talk, but you know, it's maybe not be that great. I really love a channel called Productivity Game. It's a condensed version of books. And then that's how I can also see what I want to read next. Really, really cool videos. Or um, there, there are a lot of videos that are going to give you really great information. And then, yeah, like if you're interested in that, you discovered more. I make notes. I actually make notes in the videos that I watch because I forget otherwise. Like in my phone, I have like structured lists of like a few things that I've picked up from videos and you will forget the videos. So I make a note of which ones I want to keep and like rewatch in the future, which may be useful. And I think that has really, really helped me a lot. And at some point I also had a short Spanish lesson that was following my daily routine. But right now I realize unfortunately like I'm not able to do that because I need my time for other things. So everything in life is about prioritizing. So you want to just really strongly determine what your priorities are and then base everything on those priorities. And I think morning routine is the same way. Like what's the most important thing for you? For me, it's being able to kind of be there with myself for a second. The meditation really helps to kind of break off from this rush, you know, not it's, it was a really big struggle to unlearn looking at my phone first thing in the morning. Like that can wait, that can wait, give yourself the time. So when I do the meditation, a lot of the times when I do my morning routine, like I would not even look at my phone, but I can only do that when I know that like everything in my business is working. Like when we're in maintenance phase and I don't need to be doing any growth, when I'm not training anyone, when everything's working, that's something that I'm able to afford to do time-wise. 
I know sometimes that's also not possible. So then you want to just, again, prioritize and see what's the most important thing. But meditation is imperative. If you don't do anything at all, I recommend figure out one thing that's going to help you to just get away from the routine and from the constant chatter in your head. Get away from that. Learn to just break that off so that you can have a fresh perspective because then you can start with a new look. If you break away, you can look again at the problem and all of a sudden the problem gets solved because your brain is an incredible tool. It can do so much, but you got to allow it. You got to learn how to gear your brain towards what you want to do now and give yourself the tools to do it. So yeah, it's again, it's a tool, but if you don't pick up the tool and use it, it's going to be useless if it's laying around there. So don't let your brain lay around there. I love that. Awesome. All right. Lydia, at this point, are you ready for the lightning round? Da 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 da. <laughs> I am ready. Let's do it. The lightning round. All right. You just named one of your favorite video channels on YouTube that you typically watch. Let me ask you now for one book that you would recommend that perhaps has significantly influenced you in your life. Yep. It's a book that everyone should read. It's a book called Mindset, The Psychology of Success by Dr. Carol Dweck. I think it's a prerequisite for everything in life because she teaches you of what kind of mindset you need to adopt to be able to do anything. I can't say that it's the most exciting book, to be honest. It's really useful, especially if you're a parent. I think that book gives you a lot of insights on how do you give your kids the right mindset. But it's also, it's great for everyone. It's literally should be like mandatory for every human being on the planet. Read the whole book. It gives great examples. Because when I first, I I tried to read it twice. First time when I started reading it, I put it down because I was like, oh, I know all this shit. Like, it's easy. I mean, come on, like mindset. I know how to make this right. And then the second time when I read through the whole book, it gave a lot of great examples, which I didn't think were, I didn't think to apply to those examples. So make sure you read the whole thing. And if, if you've come across a boring part, just hang in there. It's going to get better. But once you read that book, you all of a sudden feel like your brain is a much bigger tool that you thought it would be. All right. If you were able to go back in time now, knowing everything that you know and everything that you've learned up to this point in your life, and you're able to give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give to 18-year-old Lydia? Ah, good question. You know, when you're that young, everything feels like it's just so final. Like every heartbreak, every failure, you think that that's it, like that that defined you just knowing that that's going to happen over and over again. So might as well get better at that. It was probably a very useful piece of advice that nothing is final. It's all going to change and then it's going to change again and then you're going to change and that's okay. Accept that and the better you adapt, the better you survive. So when you have a problem, like adversity is not a bad thing. Learning that adversity is a good thing because that teaches you to grow, that makes you better. And constant growth is absolutely necessary. If you're not growing, that means you're diminishing. And if you're diminishing, you're suffering. If your personality is not constantly expanding, then you're probably not going to be the happiest person you can be. Awesome. All right. I was wondering if you could give us one travel hack from all of your world travels around the world. What's a travel hack that you use when you're traveling around? I have a good one. I shared it once in another interview and I I sometimes was hesitant to share it because I'm like, what if everyone starts doing that? So when you have flights, especially long transatlantic or transoceanal flight, 
a lot of times, well, I mean, if you're able to afford a first class seat, good for you. I want to get there sometime as well. But so far, I still fly in coach and that's not the most comfortable way to fly. And I don't know how you do it, Matt, because you're a much bigger person than I am. I mean, I'm pretty small and it's still not very comfy. But, you know, I'm 5'4 and I still struggle with just sitting there for 12 hours in one seat. So what I do is first thing I try to figure out when I'm about to board the flight is whether the flight is full. And a lot of the times it won't be like I'll, I'll very nicely ask the sometimes I even do that on the, the registration stand and I'll be like, hey, by the way, just wanted to check out and is the flight full? So if the flight is not full, then my job is going to be figure out which seats are open because I want to find two, three or four seats together where I can sleep. And if you don't do this fast, somebody else is going to sleep in that space. So I will gently ask and be like, hey, by the way, do you have any open seats together that we can look at? And sometimes they won't tell you, sometimes they will. So usually what I do is I'll wait till the plane is almost done boarding, like the last moment. And I want to be literally, if not the last, one of the last people to get on the plane. And then what I'll do is you'll always have your seat. You don't have to necessarily go to your seat right away. I'll walk through the plane and I'll see where there are three, four, or at least two seats together that are open. And I'm going to claim the shit out of them. I'm going to put my stuff all over. I'm going to sit as if I own that space because otherwise some lady's going to come in and she's going to try to do that. I'm like, nope, that's when I'm going to be selfish. This is my space. So of course, they're going to ask you to put your luggage like under the seat and I'll do that. But I'll like, you know, they're, they're blankets. They give you blankets. So I'll like put a blanket over a few seats right away. It's like, this is claimed. Don't you even think about. So yeah, like a number of times I've just had like a four, four sleeper all to myself, just total first class because you can always go back to your seat. They can't take that away from you. They're also not going to like kick you out if you're not causing any trouble. So yeah, I'll just gently claim the seats and like, of course, strap in there for takeoff. And, but the moment I can strap out a takeoff, I mean, I can strap out of, of my belt and you know, that, that seat belt sign disappears. I'm going to put my stuff all over that, claim the seats <laughs> and then love, sleep. That's awesome. All right. You've been to 37 countries now and a lot of different places within those countries. What are your top three favorite travel destinations of all time? God, I hate that. I hate that question. I just absolutely do because it's so hard to choose. It's so, so hard to choose. See, travel really depends on what you're trying to do. So it's important to travel to destinations that are conducive to what your goals are and your priorities are. But for me personally, like, because, you know, some places may be, they may be absolutely magical naturally, but like, you know, people aren't that great or it's just harder to connect. I found that to be the truth in Greece. But for example, like it was kind of hard for me to connect with the locals because they're, they're just like, they're out, but they're sort of out together a lot. So I, I connected with friends a lot, but not so much locals. But as far as top three, all right, well, let's see. I have to say this place we're in, Cape Town, is I would say naturally definitely in, in the top. Like it's, oh my God, incredible scenery. Just mind-blowing, like the the rocky cliffs, the mountains, the nature, the the flora. Like the flora is just, wow. I mean, South Africa, beautiful. And people like, for, for ages, I didn't even consider Africa. I was like, well, that content I don't know much about. And now I'm starting to discover Africa. And boy, Africa rocks. It's amazing. And I'm so excited to keep traveling this, this amazing continent. And people too. In Cape Town, so, you know, they have this, the, the history of apartheid and it's such a painful history. And for some reason, when I was coming here, I expected to see a lot more hatred, like a lot more like, oh, you know, I've been met with all this kindness 
people are so nice. I've seen nothing but helpfulness and kindness since I've been here. Like everyone's trying to help. Everyone's there for you. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's still, you can see the hardship and you can see where the divide line is, but I was just blown away by how cool and nice people are. And also everyone speaks English and that makes things easier for sure. So yeah, South Africa, I think is, is a big one. And wineries, my God, have you seen the wineries? I've been a lot of wineries around the place and I'm a big, big lover of wine. This place, the most beautiful wineries I have ever seen so far. Like, oh my God. Okay. I can talk about this forever. I'm going to switch to the next one. Mm. (laughs) All right. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see. What else is there? This beautiful. I mean, there's a lot of places in Europe, but everybody else is going to tell you about that. So, you know, like Europe is great, but I would say Argentina, Buenos Aires. I had a great time there. It's so cool and chill. And like not all of the areas we stayed in Palermo Soho. So I would say that area was probably like my like little paradise in Buenos Aires. Amazing street art, beautiful cafes, cool restaurants, really high quality, like culture, lots of culture. And again, tango, tango, mm. music, everything there. And all of that about like at least a half or even less than a half of European prices. Just, you know, affordable, cool stuff. That's Buenos Aires. And also, yeah, really cool people. Argentinians are awesome. I don't really eat meat, but if I did, that would be meat paradise. You know, like it just, you know, yeah, food of man, Buenos Aires, definitely coming back there. I want to come back there, maybe stay for a month or two, really kind of take it in because it was awesome, especially for nomads. Oh yeah, Buenos Aires rocks. Third one. All right, let's see. Mm. It would have to go to El Nido, Philippines, Palawan, the islands Palawan. Naturally, one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen. You have floating islands underwater too. Incredible reef, incredible. And I've, I've seen some reef and that reef was like, oh my God. Also very cool, kind people, affordable stuff. We did this, we rented this boat because I was there with my family. I was there with my parents and my brother. And we rented this boat for a day that would that took us privately island hopping. And one of the, like a part of that tour, and I think we paid like probably a hundred bucks for the whole day, for the whole tour with like two people helping us navigate in a whole boat and lunch. They cooked this lunch right there on the boat and they served it to us on these white sandy beaches in an uninhabited island. It was just something like, and we were just sitting there and it was, and it was like, not like sandwich lunch. It was a fucking feast. We had all kinds of fish there. We had shrimp, we had bread, we had rice. Oh, my mouth is watering when I'm just thinking about that food. It was so good. And again, kind people, people are big, you know, like people matter. Like it's for me, I, I think I'm more and more discovering that I love being in places where the people are kind and open because then I can connect with them and, and build something and get to know them. And it's really, really awesome. So yeah, I would say those are my top three very, very highly recommended places. Awesome. Yes. I, uh, I've i never been to the Philippines, but it's my second time in Cape Town and I have lived in Buenos Aires for about, I think now it's probably been four months that I've spent mm. in Buenos. So that's uh, that city is uh, definitely has a, a important place in my heart as well. Okay, what are your top three bucket list destinations that you've never been that are highest on your list right now? Uh, bucket list. All right. Scotland. I've been wanting to go to Scotland forever and I just never seem to get there. Mostly because of the season. A lot of the times I end up in Europe when it's not really like hot in summer and Scotland is not a place I want to go in winter. So this is, I think I'm going to really try to go there this summer and I'm really excited because I love the Scottish culture. 
I had Scottish friends early on in my life and they were so damn cool. Those people are awesome. They're down to earth. They're open. They have that old season culture in them. And then also you have men in kilts. Like, come on, like, that's so cool. Like, where else are you going to get that? And uh, the music, I don't know about the food yet. We're going to have to see about the food because like, haggis didn't really, isn't really exciting right now, but maybe, well, I don't eat meat anymore. So I guess, yeah, maybe that was going to be a little bit of a hard one. So we'll see about the food, but Scotland, yeah, you've had a place in my heart for a long time. Now I want to come see you finally. Let's see what else. I've been thinking about Antarctica, actually. That's been kind of growing on my list just because, I don't know, Antarctica just because. I think amazing beauty, being away from everything, being in such a unique place. It is it is quite expensive to go there. So I'm still thinking of the logistics of how to do it best. But yeah, just, you know, go hang out with penguins, a few killer whales, you know, meet a few polar bears, shake a few hands. You know, I, I told you I love the locals, right? So I'm totally <laughs> looking forward to connecting with the locals in Antarctica. <laughs> Um, all right, let's see. Third place, third place. You know, I still have not been to Italy. I have not been to Italy and I'm looking forward to doing that. I've been like saving it. I've been saving the destination for what I really want to like go and visit friends there and like meet the locals because I think that's the best experience where like you visit somebody and they take you to see their family in some kind of like a small little town and they throw a feast for you. Like, I want that. I really, really want that. Oh, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to throw out a few things that are on my lifelong bucket list. And I have a lifelong bucket list that I want to achieve at some point. And I think I might need outside help in getting those. And I just thought about that. Two things on my bucket list is attending weddings in India and Japan and wearing cultural attire to both of them. I've been really wanting to do that for like ever. I love wearing a kimono. When I was in Japan, I did a, um, a kimono like trying outfit. And I feel wonderful in a kimono. I, I was actually, the locals told me that I rock it surprisingly well. So I was very, very honored to hear that. But I love the Japanese culture and I love the Indian culture. And I think weddings are incredible places to experience that culture. So if you are getting married in Japan or in India, please invite me. Um, I'll literally like come to your wedding, like unless I have some other crazy plans that I can't cancel, but literally I'll make an effort to come to your wedding and I can even bring a gift of some kind. So yeah, I really want to do that. <laughs> so let me know. That's on the bucket list. Definitely want to do that sometime. That's amazing. All right, Lydia, this has been so awesome. I want you to let people know how they can get a hold of you how they can follow you on social media, how they can check out the I do, you know, photography and everything else that you're up to. I think Instagram is probably the best tool because of the things that I've been writing. I've also been posting with a few photos here and there on both my personal Instagram and if you are into the wedding scene in any way, like if you're either getting married or, uh, you know, you just want to learn more or you want to see beautiful wedding pictures, definitely follow us on Instagram as well. You can also check out our website. It's the photography.com to, to see, you know, what we do and everything that we talked about today. But yeah, I think Instagram is the biggest tool. I also did want to mention a project that we currently got into when we're, well, we're, we have all been here in Cape Town. And if anybody's feeling like they want to be a part of this project, it would be super cool because we're currently doing fundraising for building a daycare in one of the townships in Cape Town. It's a place that this wasn't planned. It's a, we went there and we met this amazing woman, Nasife, who started a daycare in her own house, if you can call it a house, in a township, which is basically like the slum, I guess, in a way, and or some parts of it are quite a slum because it's 
houses built out of whatever they could find. It's it's a lot of plywood. It's just whatever could be used. And it was heartbreaking to see that what conditions people live in, but it was very uplifting to see how happy they can be living in places like that because the community there, I think, is going strong. But uh, yeah, the daycare that's happening right there is was literally built out of leftovers of a set of a TV show, Black Sails. They filmed it in Cape Town, apparently, and like, yeah, some plywood and just some... Yeah, anyway, that's not a place for kids to live like that so or, or to be there. And she's taking care of kids like for 12 hours a day sometime. And the most important thing about that daycare, it's called Little Leaders. She's giving, she's starting to give them education early on. They're learning stuff. They're taught to be, to take initiative, to learn how to like take the most out of the resources that they have. And I was amazed. And I thought, we all thought like, if they could do this with the little that they had, like what's going to happen if we give them more resources. So we want to build that daycare and uh, we're raising, I think uh, about $18,000. We already raised about five. So we still have a ways to go and we want to build them a normal building because then she can get government funding and it's fireproof. So it's safer. And you should see those kids, man. They were, they're so cool. They were so full of life and so well-behaved and so cool. Like, yeah, I think all of us just stood there and we all felt really, really compelled to do something about it. So if this is a project you want to participate in, get in touch with me. We have a Go- GoFundMe campaign. and Or if you can think of any other ways that are going to help us to build a daycare in, in Cape Town, then that would be great. Do participate because this is something that we're going to go back to you know, for a while. And if this succeeds, maybe we could do more of that. So that would be a really, really, really cool project. So yeah, yeah, just putting it out there. All right, we're going to link all of this stuff up in the show notes at one place at themaverickshow.com. You can just go there. We're going to have links to everything that you're up to. But can you just give out your personal Instagram handle if people want to follow you? Yes, my personal Instagram is, well, Instagram.com. And my handle is Lydia Bay LA. So L-Y-D-I-A-B-A-Y-L-A. Okay, and we are going to put a link for that in the show notes. You can just go there and click on it. And by the way, I strongly encourage everybody to follow you on Instagram because your Instagram is amazing. Thank you, Matt. Thank you for letting me share. This was an amazing experience and I'm honored to be a guest on your show. I think what you're doing is incredible. And yeah, Matt is a super, super cool person. We met, what, a year ago on Nomad Cruise. And yeah, I feel like you were one of the people that I really like connected with. And, you know, we had a few really cool heart to hearts. And I think that you have incredible value to offer people. And uh, I'm so glad that you're doing this. You're also a really cool host. So thank you for leading me through this so well. Well, thank you for being on the show. I've been actually trying to get you on the show for a full year now since we initially <laughs> met. And it's been really fun because we've seen each other and hung out a number of places around the world. So we were initially on that first Nomad Cruise. We're in Brazil together. We're here in Cape Town now. And it's been really, really amazing to both get to know you personally, as well as get to see all the incredible stuff that you're doing on the business side of things and you know the, the charitable stuff that you just mentioned and all these super, super cool things. So in some ways, I'm glad we waited a year just because... You know, I feel like the interview is better now than it would have been a year ago, but I'm super, super excited that this finally happened. And I thank you for being on the show and sharing your amazingness. Thank you, Matt. And thank you everyone for listening. I was very honored to share with you guys. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. 
Would you like to get Maverick Investor Group's white paper on real estate investing for digital nomads? How to buy U.S. rental properties from anywhere in the world and finance an epic international lifestyle? Just go to themaverickshow.com slash nomad. The report is totally free and available for you now at themaverickshow.com forward slash nomad. Do you want to learn how to travel the world for a year plus with carry-on luggage only and look good while you're doing it? Go to themaverickshow.com slash packing to see a free recorded webinar and learn exactly how Matt does it. He shows you the luggage he uses, the specific items he packs, and the travel brands he likes most. Even if you're just looking to go on shorter trips, but pack more efficiently and eliminate your checked luggage, you won't want to miss this. You can watch the free recorded webinar at themaverickshow.com forward slash packing.